Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. You know, we're effectively Lego, where you can, as if you kind of agree with how the Lego works or is built or the fundamentals of the Lego, you're then able to build whatever castle, car, space shuttle you actually might want to build with it. And so it allows us to service private equity firms, management consultants, technology businesses. There's actually a huge amount of service area because of the inherent flexibility of the underlying platform. Hmm. Yeah, you're kind of like reconstructing a lot of the work that they previously did manually via an internal team or a carbon credit consultancy, or at least like bringing all that data into one place to make it easier to source. That makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly it. All right, Brennan, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Appreciate it. Yeah, so Patch has been on my radar for a while, but for folks listening in who might not be as familiar, why don't we just start with you know, 60, 90 seconds, get folks up to speed on the company and the mission. Yeah, absolutely. So at the highest level, Patch is a software company that makes it easier for organizations to interact with environmental markets. So what that means is we're effectively two businesses. The first is we help carbon credit developers. So these are organizations where their core business is to either abate or remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We help them commercialize and scale their company. And we use software to do that. So we help them with inventory management, we help them collect payment, we help them get access to buyers of their services, of the value they're providing by mitigating the negative environmental externalities of carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. The second business we have is on the other side of that. It's on the buyer side of the experience, where Pass looks like a B2B marketplace for climate action, where we'll work directly with primarily corporates, primarily tech-adjacent corporates, to launch either net zero sustainability programs, or embed some form of climate action into their product or service. So again, um, kind of software first, really leveraging software in order to enable this, but really working with a really wide variety of businesses across private equity, payments, traditional banking. Excellent. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into both sides of kind of the marketplace model, if you will. Also interested, before we kind of dive deep to get a little bit more of your background and kind of how you came to working on these challenges and climate change as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. So starting past is really an opportunity for me to come full circle, if you will. So I'm originally from New York, but I studied chemical engineering in Montreal with the intention of working in low carbon energy. So I thought that's going to be how I was going to go about mitigating the climate crisis. I thought I was going to be developing and decarbonizing the grid. Didn't work out. Only got jobs in the tar sands coming out of school in Western Canada. And so instead of doing that, I threw all the chemical engineering out the window <laughs> and became a programmer at Shopify instead, right after the Series C, <laughs> out in their auto office. I worked there for a couple of years, and then we joined a small hospitality startup called Flatbook, which is then under Saunders. Mm. It was at Flatbook that I met Aaron Grunfeld. He's my co-founder, and he was one of the first employees at Flatbook and now Sonder. And we helped scale that business from about 20 people to around 1,500, 1,600 people at its peak. And in that company, recently went public earlier this year, in 2022. And back in April of 2020, Aaron and I thought that Sonder was getting a little bit too big for us. We wanted to see if we could leave and replicate the magic we had at Sonder again, but bringing back to climate change. And so we put our heads together and came up with Patch, and that was two and a half years ago. Nice, yeah. Congrats on the good work back then and the good work since. I guess this might be 
jumping the gun a little bit, but is there a connection or a through line through your work at Shopify and your desire to build something like Patch 2? Because I know that Shopify is also a very conscious company in terms of building solutions to integrate climate positive stuff into user experiences. I actually think it's a little bit less specific than that, actually. What mm, I mean by yeah. that is actually the software I built at Saunders Rail really maps this problem where the kind of really high order kind of problem when it comes to ecosystems that are really rapidly scaling, whether it's businesses like Sonder that have a really kind of nitty gritty physical digital interface associated with them, mm-hmm. or a category creation type business like Shopify, where it's essentially bringing on all of these different types of merchants online in a very short amount of time and supporting them with ancillary services. The overarching problem was essentially supporting a really fast growing ecosystem by managing the information complexity associated with that fast-growing ecosystem. Mm. And that's actually what really we're taking from those Shopify and Sonder experiences and applying to Patch, where you have all these different carbon removal developers kind of really rapidly coming into the market, while at the same time, the magnitude of the problem we need to be solving is many orders of magnitude away from where we are today. And when you have that really rapid expansion, when you're bringing new supply, new sales, new commercialization motions online, there's a huge amount of information complexity associated with that. And so whether it's like the Tetris we do with carbon credits versus the inventory management we're doing at Shopify or the kind of cross-border payments challenges both businesses face, a lot of the problems that Patch is solving today are actually problems we saw in the two businesses we worked at prior. Okay, yeah. So not necessarily to reiterate, but to make sure I understand, when you were kind of conceiving of the work that you would do at Patch, It sounds like one of the things that you researched and came to understand was kind of like the rapid growth or at least the rate of change being significant in the carbon removal market. And uh, there was an opportunity to take some of what you learned from scaling other kind of software companies to apply it to that problem too. So I would actually say it in a slightly different way because I think what you've said is actually why we've been successful today because the problems we're facing are not unfamiliar problems. But the way we came up with the idea of patch was not, <laughs> hey, this other thing is coming to be and we think we can solve that problem and therefore we should do it because it's an opportunity. We actually had a much more first principles approach to coming up with the idea of patch where we thought, what are like the eight or nine things that need to be true in the world in order for us to hit our climate goals as a species, right? And there were a bunch of things related to decarbonizing the grid. There was this idea of like, well, where does our food come from? How do we think about land use? And another component was, well, how do we get between 10 to 15 gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere per year starting in 2050? Mm. And a company like Patch was one of the things that needed to exist in order to enable that. And so it was actually at that point where we thought, well, these are the seven or eight different things on on the menu, if you will. And we actually feel best equipped to solve the Patch-shaped one. And so we decided to start there. So what's kind of interesting is we did not start with a problem or what we viewed as an opportunity. It was actually more of like a Moral imperative is probably a bit dramatic, but this idea of if we are going to hit our climate goals, we have all these different things that need to be true. And we feel like we can do the most impact on the patch-shaped one. And so we're going to do that one. Now, I don't know if I'd recommend other entrepreneurs come up with their business idea like that, because it's kind of taking a solution and trying to almost find a problem effectively. But fortunately, it's worked out for us. So <laughs> already so far. Yeah, no, and it's cool to chart, you know, your trajectory from studying in school and positioning yourself for kind of a different of those eight or nine imperatives of decarbonizing the grid. But now here you are three years into a pretty successful journey to, to help scale carbon removal. So let's talk about what you've learned about 
this kind of certainly burgeoning carbon removal space. And, you know, I think a lot of folks that maybe only read a headline here or there can be quite skeptical of carbon credits and carbon offsets in general, but certainly something that I've written about and tried to cover good companies that distinguish themselves and in, in trying to do this in a really credible and impactful way. What have been some of the things that, you know, you'd share with folks listening in that have made you or encouraged you to continue building at the forefront of that kind of climate solution? Yeah, no, it's a great, great point. So, you know, I think when you're working in any ecosystem, whether it's in climate or, or anything else, it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day complexities and, and trials and tribulations of a particular problem or solution or anything you're kind of tr- attempting to navigate in, in the short term, right? The week by week, the month by month, the, the, the in the trenches, if you will, uh, the forest in the or the trees, excuse me, in the forest and the trees. Right. And, you know, what gets us really excited and gives us both keeps us focused, but as well as like kind of helps us realize the magnitude of the problem is really just starting with the climate science, Mm. which is if you zoom all the way out and look at where we need to be by 2050, we need to be be doing around 10 to 15 gigatons of carbon removal from the atmosphere per year. And potentially more if we overshoot past our carbon budget in the next five years. So we'll see, we'll see if we overshoot or not in order to hit our climate goals. Right. And again, even if we don't hit our whatever our climate goals might be, right, whether that's a degree and a half, two degrees, or if we actually blow past that, every tenth of a degree matters. Right. So there is no world that is both hospitable to both us as well as all the other species on the planet and gigaton scale carbon removal don't coexist with one Mm -hmm. another. These things have to be true and they both have to exist at the same time. When you have that kind of almost ultimate truth, if you will, at the horizon, at the 10, 20 year horizon, which we kind of build on, you know, we're playing a multi-decade game here. It's very, it's very focusing, you know, and there's going to be failures along the way and things that don't work along the way. But if you just start with the kind of absolute truth of the climate science of that, that we need gigaton scale carbon removal and, the, and actually on the scale of dozens of tons per year, then it's very, very clarifying in a lot of cases. And if you're building for the long term, that's really what gets us excited and, and motivates us. Yeah. And for folks listening, you know, just for clarification, a gigaton, billions of tons of carbon removed annually. And we're talking about an industry which is currently at scales that are, you know, in the hundreds of thousands or millions. So discussing, you know, how to a thousand X or even 10,000 X the, the scale in a carbon removal industry. So what are some of the projects that you're working to support and what does that support look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's actually a huge amount of diversity on on the patch platform with respect to kind of the different chemical pathways that can remove carbon. So whether that's something as familiar as something like a what we would describe as a short-term carbon cycle, so that's a nature-based solution. So that might be something like a reforestation project that might be on the scale of 50 to 150 years worth of durability. For those who might who don't know, durability is how long does that positive environmental effect last for? How long does that carbon stay out of the carbon cycle? Right. Something maybe a little bit more experimental and a little bit more permanent. Something like enhanced weathering, which is all about taking different minerals that can react with carbon dioxide to form carbonates primarily. For those who don't know, carbonate is a very stable molecule, essentially, where it's actually it releases energy within the reaction, which means you need to put a huge amount of energy into that thing to reverse that reaction. And because of that, it ends up being very stable and it's kind of natural ambient temperature, you know, zero to 30 degrees Celsius kind of state. 
And so we actually, the goal of Patch is to be technology agnostic and really drive a huge amount of transparency and helping people understand what are the strengths and weaknesses of each different chemical pathway. Because the unfortunate reality is there actually is no silver bullet at the end of the day. You know, there's some kind of really high scale nature-based solutions that exist today that are inherently shorter on the durability kind of end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But those are really great for bridging us to that 20, 2100 kind of time period. And then you have longer term durable solutions like enhanced weathering that might be limited by the understanding of the underlying chemistry or lands actually deploy the associated mineral on. Or you have things like direct air capture, which are typically rate limited by both the kind of thermodynamic reality of the fact that although there is still much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's still a trace element in or a trace molecule in the atmosphere. And so you need a huge amount of electricity. You still need a huge amount of power. And if you're not getting that power from renewable energy, then you're going to be in a tough situation when it comes to kind of making that mass balance work. You can't really be depowering your direct air carbon capture facilities with fossil fuels. So you need to have really large amounts and abundant amounts of electricity that's clean. And so there are only very, there are very few places where that exists. And so you actually need this mosaic of solutions to come together. And Patch aims to make that mosaic easier to construct and a little bit easier to understand. And how are you diligencing and doing the work to understand a bunch of these different pathways? Because, you know, I'm someone who's tried to keep up with a lot of them and the different companies in his own way, and it can certainly be overwhelming at times. So are you building a team of scientists that do this work or working with other organizations? What's that look like? So I'll talk about kind of two things. The first is really this idea of Patch embraces the mantra of trust through transparency on the platform. So historically, carbon markets, and you, you probably know this, I guess someone who's a bit more familiar with the ecosystem, have been historically opaque mm-hmm. through because they, people have attempted to make carbon a commodity mm-hmm. where they're almost all fungible, essentially, right? Every ton is created equal. Every ton is created similar to the one next to it. We now know that that is fundamentally untrue. Right. Every ton is not created equal, whether it's actually the core mechanism of is it a ton avoided versus a ton removed mm-hmm. or whether it's on terms of the durability. So how long does that environmental effect last for the right. geography, the actual chemical pathway, the rate at which that ton is actually removed at. Right. So there's actually like a flux question there. How, you know, with reforestation, you're actually rate limited by the rate of photosynthesis or yeah. like direct air capture, where if you can actually get more throughput, you can accelerate the velocity of that process. There's actually a huge amount of variability. And so for us, it's all about surfacing all that information to really make sure people are understanding what are they actually buying and what's driving both the price discrepancies and are, is that aligned with their associated climate strategy? Next question is, well, how do we get that information? Yeah. Right. The way we get that through that information is actually working with a bench of, of third parties, depending on the chemical pathway. And the reason for that is actually twofold. The first is, just thinking practically, the amount of diversity within these chemical pathways is immense. And you mentioned it earlier, it's actually very difficult for you to keep up. It's difficult for me to keep up. You know, I studied chemical engineering and I still need to kind of make sure I'm keeping up with the latest. At the end of the day, though, you can go miles and miles deep on one particular type of technology or chemical pathway. And it is not going to be feasible for PATH to actually hire all the actual best in the world experts for every one of these types of chemical pathways. And we actually like to say that some of the best climate solutions are probably still on a bench somewhere in a university. Totally. And so there's actually going to be new chemical pathways coming online over the next decade. And so for us, we're always going to be working with third parties just because of the practicality of scaling an academic organization like that, as well as 
the kind of difference between a chemist versus a chemical engineer is also a little bit subtle where, you know, one is about developing the process and one is about operationalizing. You actually need both to provide insight on is a particular technology going to work or is it not going to work? And in, in either case, how is it going to work? The second element though is actually just simply comes down to incentives where, you know, these organizations, the ones producing these, this data that we actually present in Patch are effectively verifiers. They're essentially making an attestation of the underlying attributes and qualities of a particular technology type. Mm-hmm. If you think about Patch at scale though, where we make money through volume, we would technically be incentivized if this is all in-house to say everything works all the time. <laughs> right. Right. And that's because we want to have more volume to sell. Right. It's effectively like having a credit ratings agency and the NASDAQ be the same party. It's highly unethical and the incentives are incredibly perverse. Mm. And so we actually structurally separate those things from day one to make sure if someone is saying a credit is good or bad or high durability whatever it might be, we want that organization to be structurally separated from patch. Now, we want that information to be presented in patch so people can understand, well, what am I buying and how do I make sure I stay informed as a buyer? A patch cannot have a vested interest in those underlying verifiers, certifiers, or the projects themselves. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to be a situation where it gets very, very slippery. And so when you actually said earlier, which projects are you supporting? I kind of perked <laughs> up my ear a little bit because we don't support any project. Like we provide software to enable everyone to kind of put their best foot forward. But we actually can't be in a position where we're picking winners and losers because of those incentives that could get a little bit off the rails in the future. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense and it's laudable. And I also like kind of the, certainly like thinking about how, because as you said, like there's a lot of solutions that, you know, someone's cooking up in a lab at some academic institution and a really relevant question is, you know, like how do we make sure that like, that sees the light of day and scales and stuff like that. So I think organizations thinking through whether it's academics and residence programs or these types of partnerships to work with a bunch of different organizations and still add an arm's length capacity in some instances. I think that's really interesting. It's definitely an area for organizational development too. Yeah, absolutely. No, thinking about incentives at scale is, especially if you want to rely on markets and capitalism to kind of solve <laughs> what is inherently an altruistic problem. You have to really make sure the kind of divides are very, very clear within that system to make sure that it's healthy and operates ethically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's flip over to the other side of the marketplace, for, if you will, for a bit. You know, help folks listening in understand, you know, how you help like buyers and corporate clients integrate more of this work into their product. Yeah, absolutely. So there's really two core ways we work with companies. The world where someone might have some sort of net zero commitment, where they're primarily using the UI a patch with the digital kind of the online experience a patch has. This looks like a more traditional marketplace that a lot of folk, listeners are probably familiar with. This idea of effectively the Airbnb for climate action, right? Mm-hmm. Where depending on what type of climate strategy you have, geography, price per budget, you're able to actually explore the voluntary carbon market, actually structure and build portfolios, and then transact. You can transact in a couple of different ways, whether it's through reserving inventory to draw on over a year or two. Mm. Uh, it's actually operating within spot markets. So this is the whole idea of, you know, you see a price, you like the price and you transact immediately. Mm-hmm. Or structuring long-term optic agreements, mm-hmm. uh, where these are actually these large multi-year contracts, typically on the scale of five to 15 years, uh, where you actually can construct them and service them through the patch platform. You know, we recently launched Optic publicly with Bain as kind of one of our first leading leading customers. 
And the thing that was really exciting for them was this idea of historically, offtakes have been bilateral agreements, where it's been a one-to-one agreement, where you as one buyer have to work with one supplier. But now using patch and leveraging patch to software, you can actually have a one-to-many relationship where you're able to actually create an offtake that actually plugs into a bunch of different parties and balance the load and balance the spend across them all without actually having any incremental contracting or servicing of that particular offtake because patch of software manages that for them. So a lot of really interesting ways to, to transact. And I was just going to say that, you know, tracks with what you were saying earlier about, you know, how do we build scale, not just any carbon removal pathway, but a mosaic of solutions that maps directly to that. I like that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. No, I mean, I think the reality of the situation is because there isn't going to be any separable, finding ways to make many options bankable at the same time is going to be critical. And the second option is really kind of this API first option. This is actually what Patch started or launched with. And so for those that don't know, APIs are how computers talk to each other. So you're actually able to do anything you can do through the Patch dashboard, you can do through Patch's APIs. So you're able to actually write a couple lines of code and embed some form of climate action within a digital product or service. Mm. And so you have companies like Afterpay who can actually write a couple lines of code and embed the ability to compensate what their end consumers buy through the Afterpay app from Afterpay, where you're actually able to see a subset of the patch project network and transact from the Afterpay app. And that's all powered through Patch's APIs. So we actually have both use cases. Uh, it's actually about 50-50 between customers of each. Nice. Where you have companies like EasyPost or, or Afterpay using, using the API experience. And then you'll have like large private equity firms, banks, uh, sometimes e-commerce platforms using the kind of procurement tools. And at which point did you decide to build the kind of like the first branch of the business that you mentioned that came after actually building the API? Like when did you start working with clients like Bain to kind of do, wouldn't call it more bespoke, but, you know, not necessarily tech integrated work? I mean, it really came from the fact that, you know, our core mission is to get us gigaton scale. And that typically means going up market. And so when you look at the way up market organizations were buying, it wasn't really in spot markets. And in some cases, it wasn't actually a digital experience. It was actually a large procurement team or totally. maybe a chief sustainability officer putting together a broader strategy and needing tools to give their team more leverage in order to interact with these markets. And so it was actually like a very organic moving up market and seeing what problems different organizations were having. They were a little bit different from what we had, but still were easily attainable based on the products we had built to date. And so we were actually pretty easily able to service that need. Yeah. And I can imagine it was, you know, the first time some of those clients came through the door, they probably asked a lot of the same questions I do of like, how are you, you know, building your portfolio of carbon credit projects? Like, what did that diligence process look like with your first, you know, enterprise scale client? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think the first was probably RBC, World Bank of Canada. It's the largest bank in Canada. For us, it was actually primary, most of the uh, kind of, weight of the process was actually on IT and security, kind of going through actually the software procurement flow, because essentially the, the software itself was actually how you diligence the underlying inventory on the platform. You know, there are many projects on Patch that certain organizations don't want to transact with, but they do the diligence through the platform. And if they don't want to transact with them, then they don't have to. That's kind right. of the beauty of Patch. It's really the flexibility that we're not actually saying any particular project needs to win or the transaction needs to happen in any particular way or in any particular medium. Mm -hmm. You know, we're effectively Lego. 
where you can, as if you kind of agree with how the Lego works or is built or the fundamentals of the Lego, you're then able to build whatever castle, car, space shuttle you actually might want to build with it. And so it allows us to service private equity firms, management consultants, technology businesses. There's actually a huge amount of service area because of the inherent flexibility of the underlying platform. Mm. Yeah, you're kind of like reconstructing a lot of the work that they previously did manually via an internal team or a carbon credit consultancy, or at least like bringing all that data into one place to make it easier to source. That makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then that's actually why we resonate so well with CSOs, where we really believe that carbon compensation is highly aggregatable and outsourceable. But carbon uh, decarbonization is typically very specific to the value chain of a particular business. And so we really like viewing ourselves as an augmentation to sustainability teams, where how do we make it so that any sustainability headcount you get at a corporate is allocated to decarbonizing the operations of your business, and then whatever's left over, you pipe it into patch. And we're kind of like the N plus one employee on your team that, you know, never sleeps and can work around the clock, if you will. Right. Yeah. Not to be too pessimistic about old models, but, you know, each dollar that goes to a middleman that doesn't have to be there is $1 that doesn't go to scaling a carbon removal project or, or others. So that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. In terms of like the solutions that you integrate into your platform, we've talked a lot about, you know, traditional carbon credits, but we also started, when we started the conversation, you mentioned other things like other environmental benefits or methane reduction projects. Like, will the scope of solutions that you integrate into the platform and use patch to scale expand over time? And what are some of the examples maybe of things that are already kind of a bit further afield from really like traditional quote unquote carbon credits? So, um, you know, without giving too much of our future away, you know, I think the way to think about patches, the core unit within patch is actually not a carbon credit, but it's what we describe as an environmental derivative Mm. where there's some sort of positive environmental benefit that has a bunch of metadata associated with it, a unique way to serialize that information. So that's how you identify it. There's a unique identifier. And then a core unit or base unit. Mm-hmm. In the case of carbon, that's tons, that's metric tons. Or in the case of renewable energy, that's megawatt hours. Or in the case of water, that might be cubic meters. Or in the case of plastic, it might be tons again. Mm-hmm. And so the way we built the platform is actually not coupled to voluntary carbon or even carbon or greenhouse gases at all. And so we are evaluating what was it look like to potentially have additional different environmental derivatives on the platform and both what suppliers are selling into multiple of these markets, as well as what buyers transact in many of these markets. So there is actually a Venn diagram to kind of look at there. Most obvious being compliance carbon markets, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's the LCFS market in British Columbia and California, the ETS over in Europe. Um, as well as a series of other compliance markets. But um, nothing's decided yet, but the longer-term ambition for Patch is certainly not to operate just in the BCM. Yeah, and another question I had is, as the platform scales, we kind of talked a little bit about how, you know, in the past there was an emphasis on trying to make something like a carbon credit a reasonably commoditized product. Now there's some unbundling happening that kind of rightfully addresses or recognizes that there can be a lot of fundamental differences in how these things are produced and the characteristics of the credit itself. But as you know, certain products try to maybe start to maybe trade at scale more in coming years. Like, do you think there'll be a, a point in time where there's some re-commoditization, or at least like where some of the like aggregation leads to interesting price information that will be informational to the market too? Or is that not something that y'all are 
thinking about like stripping out and doing data analysis on? It's a good question. And we're like this, this idea of like things really kind of concentrated. And then now we're kind of in this re-stratification or unbundling as you described it. I think what's kind of tricky with carbon specifically, or honestly, any environmental climate technology that doesn't apply to other commodities is this idea is kind of actually twofold. The first is at the end of the day, like the reason people speculate on commodities is to, in many cases, make money and then also kind of benefit from the secondary transactions on top of the underlying one. So like most of the money in commodities is actually not in the primary transacting of the commodity, but on the secondary derivatives and options on top of it. I don't think that's useful for carbon. Like people are paying for a service to, again, abate or remove emissions. Mm. And the second piece is, they're all, again, going back to this point we we're making earlier, there's all these new types of chemical pathways that are coming online. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have this kind of weird world where you'll have like some mature technologies that maybe can be commoditized and some immature technologies that cannot be. Mm-hmm. And how do you manage that duality that exists all the time? Where like, do you like graduate from like being a novel technology to a commoditized product? Do you try smushing everything into the commoditized framework and, and kind of end up in a similar problem mm-hmm. that we're seeing today? Um, so for me, I'm always going to index on oversharing. We honestly, even within financial services, to stick to the commodity type example, you know, hiding what the underlying securities or information within a commodity has gotten people in a lot of trouble, right? We got in a lot of trouble when we weren't looking in the more within like the mortgage packages of mortgage backed securities and built a bunch of derivatives on top of them, right? If we had been looking at those FICO scores or, you know, the FICO score is the durability in this metaphor, uh, maybe we wouldn't have had that big problem in the first place. And so, you know, I'm personally very bearish on like the pure commoditization of carbon. That being said, there's still a need for standardization, right? There is still not a common language that all of these corporates and policymakers speak when they're talking about carbon. So this is not to say that this needs to be purely bespoke with a huge amount of pros explaining each underlying carbon project, because that's not that is not going to help us get to scale. It's not how you get to hundreds of billions of dollars transacted within a market. You need certain levels of standardization and common language is spoken. I do think, though, it's going to be very difficult to end up to a pure commodity kind of model when there is that much more inherent both diversity mm-hmm. as well as the actual underlying intention of the structures and of the market itself is a little bit different than purely financial. Yeah, it's a super interesting topic. There's a lot of tension in it. You know, part of me kind of feels like the market won't really be at scale until what you described with, you know, a bunch of folks that are transacting purely for financial and financialization purposes, like are active, like I agree that that's not inherently productive. But in some senses, it is like the hallmark of a sophisticated market at scale. But I also agree with you that there's a lot of potential harm in some of the obfuscation that can come from that. Like, I think we've already seen that with some applications that tried to create you know, like crypto tokens that tracked carbon credit prices, those baskets consisted a lot of credits that there wasn't really any demand for in traditional markets and and that weren't really backed by like significantly positive environmental impact. So yeah, I'm neither here nor there per se, but it's certainly not as easy as commodifying something like corn or oil. I think the way to almost think about it is like one layer above that type of commodity. So one thing that kind of really actually comes to mind that I, like Patch actually draws a lot of inspiration from as another B2B marketplace is Flexport. 
Flexport and freight, there is a huge amount of standardization within the freight industry, right? Whether it's the actual language people use, whether it's the actual shipping lanes across either from the China to the US or kind of India to Europe, whatever it might be. So there's a huge amount of standardization, but there is still no pure abstraction where you're like two or three levels away from what is the underlying, like where is the container and what is the container doing and what is in the container? <laughs> and like, there is still a huge amount of like emphasis put on the kind of more detailed data, but there's still a standard language and how people talk about this industry. Mm. And freight is worth hundreds of billions just within <laughs> the US. And I forget how big it is globally, but it's very, very large. And so I think there is a happy medium here between purely bespoke, everything is different, everything is unique, and we don't have a common language to pure commodity. I think there's somewhere in between. I actually think freight and Flexport have actually done a really good job at that. And that's kind of where we draw a lot of our inspiration from, where it's maybe, you know, you're thinking about the extremes or maybe like our end destination is like still on the side of a commodity, but not all the way at the most extreme, maybe one third over. Yeah. And that's probably where at least we're going to aim to target and end up at. Gotcha. Yeah, that's good to know. And that's funny. Some of, I know a couple of freight brokers, I should probably take that analogy and get on the horn with them soon and understand their business better than I have in the past. <laughs> yeah, stress test it. I just came up with it now. So give it, give it a stress test and see if it flies. Yeah, I'll pick their brains. No, that's good. Zooming out a bit. I know that you were just at COP27 about a week ago. What were, you know, just some of your observations from that conference? And what are some, some things that you're still thinking about and buzzing on the heels of it? Yeah, absolutely. So it actually relates a little bit to what we were talking about, and I'll explain why. So, you know, the very clear overarching theme of our presence at COP and from our experience at COP this year was there was a huge emphasis on implementation, Mm. where, you know, from Paris to Glasgow, it was really about commitments. How are we going to make sure kind of we set the rules of the game, set the goals posts, understand where we should be heading? And these kind of conversations we had in Sharm el-Sheikh were very, very focused on, okay, we have the plan, and now how are we going to actually execute on that plan? And there was actually a pretty interesting level of urgency on how to execute on it. And my hypothesis is that this is being driven by the fact that, you know, five, six, seven years ago at Paris, the people making the commitments and the people executing on the commitments were two distinct people, Mm, were two distinct organizations or, or, or almost generations within either a government or a business. <laughs> we are now entering the gap or t- period of time where the people going to the cops today are actually going to be the ones that are held accountable for the outcome of it. Right. Right. Where the CEO of this particular Fortune 500 business is actually going to be here at 2030 mm. or in 2035. And well, are be. they actually <laughs> on track to hit their plan? Exactly. Are they aspire to be, or, it's, or at least it's possible they'll be right. alive right? It's actually feasible. And so because of they won't be retired. And so because of that, the level of urgency and focus on, okay, how do we get some points on the board and actually start making some progress on these goals was actually very palpable. Mm. And that's really where Patch shines because Patch really, the whole idea, again, we're Lego bricks. So whatever framework you have, we make it easier to operationalize that framework, right? So whether it's a net zero goal, whether it's carbon neutrality, whether you're just trying to contribute to some forms of carbon compensation, Patch is highly unbiased, highly unopinionated on what you should be doing because we actually think policymakers and sustainability advisories should be the ones setting the strategy. Patch just makes it easy to hit that strategy. Mm. The thing, though, that was really preventing people, and this is the second element that is preventing people from diving in, was still the lack 
of standards. So going back to the kind of conversation we were mentioning before, where people are still waiting for that true kind of last list of core carbon principles on the carbon markets front, or people are still waiting to understand how are things going to shake out between international carbon trading and selling. And there are always kind of elements of, you know, policymakers are actively working here. But if you're doing some form of long range planning, we're trying to both plan and execute against the five or 10 year plan. And the assumptions you are basing your plan about fundamentally change, that makes it very, very difficult to do anything. And so you had a mixture of people kind of doing one foot in, one foot out, not really meaningfully mobilizing, planning to do a huge amount of investment. And a lot of people just too afraid to hop in, stay on the sidelines, waiting to see how things shake out. Mm. And what's really interesting is that's effectively the opposite of what we want to happen. Because we basically want people to be earmarking a huge amount of capital to invest over the next decade. Because it's going to be a very, very expensive problem. Right? We spent about seven to $800 billion last year on the energy transition. We need to be spending multiple trillions of dollars uh-huh. per year. So we're order of magnitude off. We want people earmarking more money to be spending. And the second piece is we need that money and investments to start flowing today. There is a time value to carbon. Right. And so if you are waiting three, four, or five years to prevent that, to start that decarbonization journey or start that carbon removal journey, that is active time that we are losing against hitting our climate goals. And so it's a very interesting paradox where the idea of standards is to make markets or ecosystems operate more effectively and more ethically, but it's actually preventing kind of resulting in the opposite effect where people aren't doing anything. And so as a result, we're further away from our objective. It's a really interesting kind of duality of a huge amount of excitement to start getting to work, but still that underlying latent hesitation because it's, it feels like the goalposts are moving. No, it's, I was going to say, I mean, definitely encouraged by what you're noting in terms of the shift, perhaps in terms of sentiment shift towards really thinking about implementation. But yeah, it still seems like even though 2022 has been a pretty big year for climate technologies on the whole, especially if you look at a country like the US, still very much still like the first moves being made. And hopefully they catalyze a bunch of other action, but it is still taking a little bit to really kick into a higher gear. Yeah, completely agree. And in that same vein, kind of also zooming out from, you know, the conversation about patch, I'd be curious just for your take on, you know, obviously, there's a lot, all kinds of different stuff that needs more investment. But what are some climate technologies, perhaps outside of carbon removal and carbon crediting that you're particularly excited about? And like, if you weren't allowed to build in the space that you currently are, like, where else would you go build something? I think it's a great question. So something that was actually very big at COP this year that it was definitely the new kid on the block is this idea of green hydrogen. So this idea of this kind of this, this fuel that can be used, it's dispatchable, it's combustible, but the actual exhaust is just water. I think the idea of honestly retrofitting and taking advantage of old, old assets and trying to find a way to use the fact that they're expected to be 30-year assets and maybe we're five years since the lifespan, how do you retrofit those? I think it's really interesting. So whether that's gas turbines, whether that's actually finding ways to cap old mines or kind of use existing infrastructure for something more sustainable, I think is actually really, really fascinating. Yeah. And the second, honestly, which is, you know, I don't know if I would actually do this because I'm, I'm a bit, I don't know if I'm this much of a masochist. There's this great book called Superpower, which basically talks about this guy, Michael Kelly, Michael Skelly, excuse me, where he tries building transmission lines from basically from Oklahoma and Texas to, I believe, the eastern seaboard to the TVA. The project ends up dying. 
But this idea of effectively moving clean electrons around land, I think is really, really compelling and interesting. Yeah. Um, very difficult to get done politically in the United States. But if you can find a way to get all that wind we have in the middle of the country and get it to the coastal cities, we're going to be in really, really good shape. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty striking to look at like a map of Burkott and Texas, the grid uh, on certain days, you'll just have like incredibly cheap electricity along the Gulf where there's a lot of wind. And then like you'll go 100 miles inland and the prices will be like super expensive. And there just isn't always an efficient way to move electricity even 100 miles in the US, let alone 1,000. I think there's also a stat like yeah. the last decade, China's built 18,000 miles of super high voltage transmission and the US has built zero. So that's a problem for someone to go. It's a problem for many people to go, go tackle from an engineering and political perspective for sure. Well, it's been awesome having you on, Brendan. One more question for me that I always like to surface for founders and growing organizations is I'm sure there's people that are listening in and are excited about what you're doing. What are the kind of teams that you're actively hiring for and, and where should people look if they're interested in getting involved? Absolutely. So if you go to patch.io, all of our jobs, jobs are open. We're hiring a couple more roles this year. We're actively hiring across all functions mm-hmm. at Patch. Whether that's marketing, whether that's sales, whether that's um, engineering and design, we're hiring across all of them. Engineering, design, product, that's all going to be US-based, but we're hiring across many disciplines also in our London office out in the UK. So if you have any European or London users, we actually, almost 30% of our customers are actually based in Europe. We're beginning to continue to invest in in our presence there. So yeah, come on down. We love love to have you help us uh, scale Unified Climate Action. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll make sure to to check out some of those myself and Adam to my job board too. It's been a pleasure. I'm excited about what y'all are building and look forward to catching up soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.